This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, not Sue Gray or Sue Gray or Sue Gray. Uh, right, uh, don't forget, if you want to come on the radio show, play our quiz, can you get to number 10? And you'll get a certificate and I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour. Uh, get in touch now. Email studio at times.radio. Studio at times.radio. And we'll get you on uh, very soon. Lovely stuff. Right, coming up on the podcast today, we've got Sue Gray unpacked. Uh, Patrick McGuire and I take the temperature of the Tory party. You've heard lots about rallying round or whatever it might be, that Boris Johnson's safe for now. Uh, Patrick McGuire and I spent the afternoon in Westminster trying to get a handle on what's really going on in the Tory party. So that's coming up in our big thing. First as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and a tu- on a Tuesday. It must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. <laughs> The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's time for Finkelvich, which means I'm joined in the studio by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from wherever he is, it's David Aronovich. Good morning. You're going to hate me for this, Matt. It's the Ides of March. What did I say? Eids. Oh, there we are. Thank you for that. Goodbye. a horrible way to start (laughs) off this. Take the Boris Johnson way. Cut me off. Well, I I apologise if you were offended, but I also did nothing wrong, uh, to be absolutely clear. (laughs) Um, uh, well, yeah, you... it was the staff. It was the staff in yes. the office. Who I apologise if we. I apologise if we made any mistakes, and I'm going to sack everyone immediately. <laughs> it was a culture. It was a, there was a culture <laughs> of mispronunciation, in which I played no part, and I cannot comment on it further. <laughs> Good. Well, as you've brought him up, then David, you can start with him. Um, uh, the relationship between politicians and the police, and. Uh, you know, the police in this country have political, you know, independence from politicians. Uh, but then it gets very, very dicey when the police then have to investigate politicians. And it could get very, very dicey indeed if a, if a, uh, a police officer has got to make the decision to give the actual prime minister a fine for breaking one of his own rules. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We, 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 
<clears throat> what we tend to do is we tend to kind of talk about the police in this situation as if the police are always just one thing with um, uh, uh, one set of objectives in mind, which are eternal, never changing, not represented by people until something goes wrong with the police, at which point we suddenly find that actually it's much more complicated than that. And that different police forces and different police chiefs can have different motivations at different times. Um, so I think we should try, try, at least try to understand that actual senior police officers are placed in actual positions which they respond to differently and the reason I say this is this is not totally unprecedented a prime minister being questioned by the police although Johnson hasn't been yet but uh, but maybe uh, as I think I said a couple of weeks ago Tony Blair also was over the cash for honours uh, question uh, where essentially a Scottish nationalist I think it was got him or maybe it's a Welsh nationalist got him report Welsh nationalist I think got him reported to 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 the police and at that stage I do remember a lot of people thinking that the police took a kind of almost perverse pleasure in uh calling up and down number 10 staff there was one I think there was one young staffer who was um uh, who was got up kind of you know at the crack of dawn or uh, and questions yeah. uh, and things like that um and you recall this do you Dan? Ruth Turner it was yeah I do. Yeah, and 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 people were scandalised. Uh, well, a lot of people uh, close to number ten were scandalised because what they thought was happening was that the police were grandstanding in this situation. What they were doing was saying, "We'll show you who's the biggest in this situation. You think you're above the law, so we're going to have a bit of fun cracking down on you." And that can happen as well. So it's even more complex than simply to suggest that there's, a, if you like, a kind of constitutional set of problems between politicians and the police. But fundamentally, at the back of it is the overall problem of perception which of course is a they're both part of the establishment and b the home office has a significant role in the appointment and effective maintenance or the position uh, of the uh, commander of the of the metropolitan police so um uh, though other police forces are more devolved that's the one which everybody everybody talks about so it is a kind of complex arrangement but it's not a complex arrangement which is just if you like kind of monodirectional always runs in the same way i i was uh, on the weekend i watched um on the on an imax screen the get back movie of the beatles oh, just yeah. the rooftop concert bit and there's a bit which everyone be, who knows about it will be familiar a policeman called ray dag 18 years old he comes in and he's basically trying to stop the rooftop concert because it's making a noise and interrupting the area and some people I suppose will <laughs> consider him the kind of butt of the joke or a uh, ridiculous figure uh, I thought he was a bit of a hero uh, even though I'm the most ma- I'm a massive you Beatles are a huge fan, Beatles fan and I the last thing I wanted anybody to do was to stop their last concert but what he was doing was implementing the law and he didn't care that it was the Beatles and he's by the way he's been interviewed since then he and I saw a bit of the interview on Sunday he still doesn't care uh, he still thinks it was the right thing to do and that's because he was trying to implement the law uh, without taking into account the kind of political pressure that comes with it being the Beatles. And I only wish the police would act more often in that way. One of the things we all ought to acknowledge is that everybody was putting massive pressure on the police to act in this case differently Uh, to the way they've acted in the past. In other words, most of the time, almost all the time, they haven't issued retrospective fines or engaged in investigations. Um, And uh, everybody basically argued that was an outrage. The police then, uh, I think, stupidly bowed to that and have then ended up with everyone being outraged at their intervention in what is now a highly political situation. I regret that the police do not have more, um, and they've done it several times 
in different instances, you can say that they did it in the in the sort of um, the, the payment for stories uh, issue that came to court. They did it with Operation Utium and Paul Gambaccini. They basically um, uh, are super susceptible in the way that David suggests to political pressure and they get themselves unbelievably tangled up. What we're looking to them to do is to implement the law in a kind of um, uh, neutral way. Now that they've got themselves in this situation, do I trust that they will now act in a completely independent way in relation to these things now that they've already got themselves you know they've already removed themselves from that principle by being involved in the first place no I don't I think that they will be acutely aware of the question of whether or not it's the prime minister they are uh, dealing with in other words they will not do what Ray Dag did um, or at least they they will they will be I worry about that. Um, what I'm looking to them to do, what I hope they will do, is the best thing that police officers can do at their finest, which is to implement the law to s- whoever it is that they're dealing with. I suppose the thing in it, David, is that if, if they've got, you know, you could almost, you know, redact the names and say this is, you know, if you laid out the situation, that on this date, these people were doing, you know, these yeah. unnamed people were doing this. And a police officer uh, might make a judgment about whether or not to issue a fine. And then if you say, well, hang on, those people were f- entirely uh, plucking this out of thin air and not alleging anything, but these people involved were the Prime Minister, his wife, and several of their closest aides in the flat in number 10, <laughs> that, then becomes a, that then becomes a much more difficult decision, even though, as Danny says, it shouldn't. Uh, it, it is a difficult decision. I mean, the, the, uh, let me say a couple of things. And the first one, I don't mean to be insulting about this, Danny, but I have a suspicion you've never been in trouble with the law. Am I right? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a because safe space if you why want to would share. you regard that as insulting? Um, uh, <laughs> because it suggests you haven't even misspent any of your youth, um, and everybody should have misspent at least part of their youth. Okay. Uh, but anyway, interesting let, theory. Let's, 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 Do you want to share? When, when have you become entangled in the law, David? Well, I got I got nicked on a demonstration when I was much younger and so on. And the police officer who nicked me then told a whole series of complete fabrications in the magistrate's court. I mean, complete lies about what had happened and so on. And the two things that this reminded me of, and a lot of people have, and I'm not saying that this still goes on, um, um, but they remind me, the, the law isn't a, a thing in the way that you suggested. It's incredibly discretionary. And the police have to apply it with an incredible degree of discretion. So there will be lots of people who were complained about for having broken lockdown regulations who were never fined anything and nothing ever happened to them, and a whole lot of people who were. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, probably listeners um, will be able to call in and, tell you know, uh, tweet us, et cetera, and tell us what their differential experiences actually were or those that they've heard of. So in these circumstances, this kind of di- applying this differential, when to do it and when to not. So personally, if I'd been policeman Dags at the age of 18, I'd have kept my snoot out a bit, really, given what was <laughs> given what was going on. He could easily have done that. Um, but I do get the point that you're talking about without sort of fear, without fear or favour. Um, I think it's partially because people know that the law is applied in a fairly kind of discretionary way by the police, sometimes almost an arbitrary way it can happen. You just happen to hope that it doesn't happen too often, but people do know this. The other second thing I want to say about this is simply this. It doesn't matter what the police say about it in some ways, really. We all know what happened. It's just kind of everybody knows what happened. Everybody in Britain, including all the people who are defending the prime minister, yeah. know what happened. Um, so in a way, it all feels like to be a completely unnecessary addition. Yeah, if, I would if agree conservative with MPs, if conservative MPs won't bring it upon themselves to do the right thing now, 
then that's their lookout, yeah. frankly, because oh, the mean, public knows the situation, <laughs> and you and I know the situation, and Matt knows the situation, yeah. and all our listeners know the situation. I've run for Parliament. I wouldn't run from I was acquitted on all charges, and the police declined to <laughs> press charges in some other cases. Right? I, I just that's not much of a slogan. <laughs> well, tell you what, let's stick with uh, law and order, if you like. And what are the more contentious bits of? Uh, of what happened in the House of Commons uh, yesterday. Let's take a listen to what Boris Johnson said about Keir Starmer. That is because, Mr Speaker, the report does absolutely nothing to substantiate the tissue of nonsense uh, he has just spoken. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Instead, Mr Speaker, this, this leader of the opposition, a former director of public prosecutions, Mr Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr Speaker. Now, this has caused quite some upset, Danny. Um, yeah. What's your... I'll tell you what I think of it. What's your take on this this, this uh, allegation, this claim, um, this assertion that uh, Keir Starmer didn't prosecute Jimmy Savile? I've got an odd uh, take. Uh, my primary take was relief. I spent years working for various Conservative leaders and Prime Ministers uh, trying to ensure that what they said in the House of Commons was true uh, and appropriate. Uh, and sometimes you look at what happens and you think, I wonder whether that was all wasted time. Uh, and uh, yesterday I looked at Boris Johnson doing that and I thought, well, it wasn't. Um, the uh, The fact is that one of a number of things must have gone on there. Either he his team uh, doesn't brief him on the difference between uh, fact and fiction or he doesn't care about the difference between fact and fiction or he didn't listen to their briefings. Uh, these, this is all a systematic breakdown. Um, to have ended up making you know, a lamentably untrue accusation, particularly of that kind of charged nature, is really very poor. There have been a number of desperate arguments being made, to be quite honest, and this is just you know the, the kind of malicious end of ambushed by a cake, right? Um, it's an attempt to uh, cover for the fact that the the truth itself is unspinnable uh, but um but as a but for someone who um occasionally wondered whether the role I was engaged in had value at all, it was interesting and a relief to note that it does because without it you end up doing something lamentable like that david first of all you're t- well I'll tell you what my my take is slightly different. I think that uh the fact that Keir Starmer was director of public prosecutions when Jimmy Savile wasn't charged, and he often cites what happened at the Crown Prosecution Service when he was in charge as proof of his suitability, it is... I mean, it's, it's not, more complicated than saying it's I not true. I don't think it is, because, because Keir Starmer's... Uh, the decisions made uh, whether to prosecute um, Jimmy Savile were not taken by him, or I think um, in certainly in the first of... In two of the three cases, certainly not when he was uh, director of public prosecutions at all. And the other one maybe was just at the beginning. I can't... I'm not uh, exactly sure of the detail of that. But, uh, but I... You know, it is fundamentally a distortion to suggest that he was responsible for um, f- for not prosecuting Jimmy Savile. And not only that, is an attempt to uh, suggest by association that uh, he had something to do with Jimmy Savile's crimes or covering them up. It's basically to attach oneself to a conspiracy theory, which he was fully aware that he was doing if he was aware of what the accusation was at all. And he's got no business being in the Commons if uh, talking yeah. if he isn't. So there are, you know, even the most innocent explanation, which is that uh, he just said it without knowing whether it was true or not, isn't a very good no. one, I think. David? No, no, no. This, this, is, this is his genuine Trump moment. 
uh, it really is. It's a classic thing that Donald Trump would have done. And it is really hard to believe that any of his staff, uh, if when they were when they were talking about actually said this is a decent thing to do. And firstly, uh, Matt, it just isn't true. Uh, and also, he was the guy who commissioned the report into why there have been a fa- uh, past failures to uh, prosecute Jimmy Savile. Uh, and he was pretty well known as DPP as the person who intru- uh, who who pushed the idea of significant prosecutions, possibly overzealous prosecutions of people accused of child abuse. So it's it's ludicrous. Uh, and the, it comes from a section of the internet which is associated with the far right uh, and so on. And in that sense, it is Trumpian. And what possessed him to actually say it? Well, presumably desperation. Um, uh, well, but it think, also tells yeah. you that some people on his team are looking at things um, that they that they shouldn't have looked at. And it's caused a significant problem for almost every bon- me- me- a person that he that has been sent out to defend him today because they can't defend that and they can't... And, and, and in the process of trying to justify it without defending it, they look even more pathetic and um, uh, gutless than they were going to look anyway. And that was pretty pathetic and gutless they were going to look. And there's a kind of bravery about going out there knowing you're going to look pathetic and gutless. <laughs> what, what would you call that kind of paradox? Uh, but anyway, th- th- there is that. It was utterly... In a, but it was also, Matt, an utterly depressing moment. Oh, yeah, that I don't, I don't, yeah, think... that, that I don't, I don't disagree with at all. It is the fact that you in the... In inability in to defend his own position, that he reaches for something as toxic as this, that demonstrates. I mean, actually, I, th- I suspect the issue, Dave, uh, Danny, is he, he doesn't have a Danny Finkelstein working for him. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have. Um, he, do- he does have people working for him, obviously, because they're, uh, they're the people that were having the parties, and I don't think they were all drunk. Um, you know, I don't, to be fair, fault. to be fair, he does have a team of people, and they're probably quite ca- some quite capable people among them. He doesn't. Uh, engage in the same briefing activities for any of his speeches uh, or, or public performances. Prime Minister's questions take and, and big, these big statements take hours and hours of preparation. And when you looked at that event, you could see that he didn't have uh, that preparation. His entire stance, uh, you know, before you t- deal with the details, his entire stance was um, to attempt a bullish attack, counterattack on Keir Starmer. And actually, that started earlier in the day on social media with a two-year-old clip of Keir Starmer calling for a second referendum, you know, which I didn't, I didn't agree with Keir Starmer at the time, and is an argument against Keir Starmer, but it's it was irrelevant to the circumstances and not the correct, uh, the correct thing because what he's the the thing that was happening yesterday, which is the Tories want to avoid at all costs, is that Keir Starmer was saying things that people think speaking on behalf of people, and Boris Johnson was attacking him at that moment uh, rather than uh, responding to people's genuine concerns. That is that was not the right approach. So let leave aside the details. He was not. Either he wasn't being given the correct strategic advice, but I think much more likely he wasn't taking it because he, he regards it. himself as, uh, you know, with, with not totally, it's not totally ridiculous that, that he regards himself this way, as having a sort of magical political instinct his <laughs> advisors and others don't possess. And therefore he doesn't um, need to uh, to listen to them. Um, or, you know, but simultaneously he also claims he's not responsible for anything that they do. These are these are incompatible um, claims. And he's gonna he's gonna dramatically yeah. overhaul number ten but also has complete faith and full confidence in all of them. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know. listen it does he doesn't listen to them and it's all their fault. <laughs> I mean, uh, you actually had on Newsnight last night you had Paul Scully, the minister, went out and said in terms Everything that's happened is the fault of the staff at number 10 and not Boris Johnson's fault. 
And it's because it's this bloated organisation, which has grown up under three prime ministers. In other words, it was being happening under Cameron and May. Therefore, you can't blame Boris Johnson for any of it. And you thought, who'd want to work for a person like that? But also anything goes wrong and they make a wrong decision. They blame you and say you should be sacked. Who wants to work for a person like that? It was also both at various points during the, the, the debate yourself. And it was number 10 was both too small and too big. Uh, it didn't have enough people. It had too many people. It didn't have enough yeah. someone in charge. It's also the most important thing to understand about Number Ten is that it's actually a building. It doesn't. Buildings don't have culture. They're bricks. Um, you know, and 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 uh, the people that make the culture, the people who whom you employ to put in them, are, they're not people I employed. And you know, the the the, the complaint everyone making Dominic Cummings is trying to do him over. Well, I, I sure as hell didn't appoint Dominic Cummings to anything. I never would have done that. I could have told him that would happen. Right? If you appoint somebody like Dominic Cummings, you're going to get the good things that Dominic Cummings can bring, right? He's, he's incredibly clever and actually, I think, was focused on some good things. Um, but also the bad things that he uh, brings with and his team. So, um, and Boris Johnson just uh, isn't... You can't say there's a sort of leadership or a culture in, in Number 10 down the street separate from him. And, you know, the one thing I can say from direct experience, this culture that's being talked about, it did not exist before he became prime minister. That is not, you know, people did not do these things and would not have done that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people said that um, Theresa May was, you know, Boy Scout or Girl Guide or whatever uh, in her approach to office. Uh, and I think we can all see the advantages of that now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, as she demonstrated yesterday, uh, it PMQs. I, I tell you what, PMQs, I would sit with Theresa May and I would always think um, I am uh, helping somebody who has got a fundamentally sound ethical basis. I, one of the things that I thought I thought she would never agree to no deal because it would it'd be politically convenient for her but damage the country and she wouldn't do something she thought would damage the country. And it was always my gut. Sometimes I didn't agree with her. You know, often I was expressing that disagreement in the newspaper um, and, you know, and to her face personally but the one thing that i always did have to believe was um that the person had the interests of the country not just themselves uh and that they were telling me fundamentally the truth that the people who worked for them were people who who she took responsibility for uh, and the things that she said were things that she'd thought about uh, and believed to be true when she said them if you don't believe those things then whatever your agreements and sometimes i even agree with not with boris johnson i can agree with him more sometimes than some of the judgments of Theresa. but i but i don't have that fundamental faith and that is completely fatal your last thoughts david um, they, they practically are my last thoughts. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, the, the difficulty we've all come to is this, uh, Danny, I, I think you, we know what we think about this. We know what we think should happen. And everything now just begins to be a reiteration of that point. Once you have said that somebody's not fit to be prime minister and they should go, there's nowhere else for you to go other than to keep repeating it. <laughs> That's the problem. And that, and that is essentially the problem we're in until we bore ourselves. And therefore, we say we can't just say that again, despite the fact that we think it's true. So we have to go off onto the next thing, leaving in place the person who we think is really uh, terrible for the country. And um, we're reaching that position, and it's depressing. David Aronovich and Danny Finkelstein there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we take the temperature of the Tory party. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewellery. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Vote Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Sue Gray unpacked on Times Radio, unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yeah. Yes, no expense spent on that jingle. Sue Gray unpacked. What I thought we would do, because there's lots of speculation about uh, where Boris Johnson is, uh, how it's all sorted. He won the room over in a meeting that no uh, independent person was in last night. Uh, so what? And you'd have heard bits and pieces about what went on in the House of Commons. But what I thought I'd do is um, take you through what, what what's actually going on right now uh, in uh, inside the Conservative Party. Uh, Patrick McGuire's here. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I uh, you and I were like uh, I liken us to Statler and Waldorf. Spent a good two hours sitting in the press gallery yesterday afternoon. We did watching it all um, up close. And what's what the beauty of being able to do that? Well, rather than even watching it on TVs, you can see the facial expressions really gauge the mood of colleagues when other people are standing up and talking. Yeah, exactly. And the people who are out of shot, they're often the most telling uh, reactions, aren't they? So let's work, work our way through this then. What actually happened in the House of Commons yesterday? And Patrick and I will sort of fill it in with what we've picked up uh, from uh, Conservative MPs uh, subsequently. Let's start then with what the Prime Minister actually said about what was in the report. But firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right. And also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. And it's no use saying that this or that was within the rules, and it's no use saying that people were working hard. This pandemic was hard for everyone. We asked people across this country to make the most extraordinary sacrifices, not to meet loved ones, not to visit relatives before they died. And I understand the anger that people feel. But Mr Speaker, it isn't enough to say sorry. This is a moment when we must look at ourselves in the mirror and we must learn. So that was Boris Johnson's sort of apology. We didn't get everything right. I particularly enjoyed, um, it's no use saying that people were working hard when uh, a little later on, in response actually to a question from Michael Fabricant trying to be helpful, Boris Johnson said, uh, uh, number 10 hosts more than 400 officials on a busy day. They have a huge amount to do. And somebody said, shout out, yeah, partying. (laughs) And he replied, no, 
They are working very hard. As ever with Boris Johnson, though, his default setting is not contrition. Contrition does not come naturally to Boris Johnson. So, you know, it was a fatal mixture of contrition and defiance yesterday. He slips back into the gung-ho, flicking the Vs mode when uh, under pressure, which he certainly was over the course of that 111 minutes yesterday. Let's uh, work our way through then some of the responses uh, to that. Um, uh, let's focus in particular, first of all, on some of what we might call sort of Tory grandees who, who got up in the House of Commons. It's a big moment um, when some of these people who've been in Cabinet, as we'll discover in a moment, even being Prime Minister, to turn on their own Prime Minister so publicly in the House of Commons. Let's take a listen. Theresa May. What the Grey report does show is that Number 10 Downing Street was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules or didn't understand what they meant and others around him or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10. Which was it? It's a very important question. I want to hear the answer even if other people don't. Prime Minister. Uh, no, Mr Speaker, that is not what the uh, Grey report says. Uh, but if she, I, 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 I suggest that she waits to see uh, the conclusion of the inquiry. Right, let us move on. Andrew Mitchell. When he kindly invited me to see him ten days ago, I told him that I thought he should think very carefully about what was now in the best interests of our country and of the Conservative Party. And I have to tell him he no longer enjoys my support. Sir Bernard Jenkins. My right honourable friend, first of all, uh, remind the Leader of the Opposition and the Labour Party that the backbenches of the Conservative Party need no reminders about how to dispose of a failing leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and can he... Can he... Steve Baker, millions of people, millions of people, took seriously a communications campaign apparently designed by behavioural psychologists to bully, to shame and to terrify them into compliance with minute restrictions on their freedom. So, Patrick McGon, let's walk through that. Theresa May, former Prime Minister, says either you didn't read the rules or you didn't think they applied to you. I mean, that's a proper, you know, um, the old, have you stopped beating your wife question, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. And pitching those questions as a former Prime Minister, the, the zone, the landing zone, no former PM, still in the Commons, obviously increasingly rare, um, wants to end up in and particularly resonant with a Tory, is Edward Heath, you know, sitting on the back benches, moaning at any given opportunity, no matter how flimsy the pretext that it's successor. And Theresa May, I would say, is just on the right side of that line. You know when she gets up, she is not going to make a cheap criticism for the sake of it. And that was a very, as you said, very well-crafted question that said much more than a um, sort of histrionic call for someone's resignation could have ever done. It also doesn't rule out the possibility that she might, at some point say that she thinks that Boris Johnson should go. Yes, exactly. More powerfully, in, you know, in, more in sorrow than in anger. Yeah. I have given him every opportunity as a former leader to, you know, it's my responsibility to give him as much rope as he, as he wants and needs. Andrew Mitchell, former Chief Whip, uh, former Cabinet Minister, um, uh, sitting next to his old mate David Davis, who did the same thing 10 days ago at, at PMQs, calling for him to go. How significant is that in terms of... I mean, we know that him and David Davis are great mates. How big is the circle in which uh, they move that might bring other people to the same conclusion? I, I would say they're certainly tastemakers, 
right? Well, maybe tastemakers is is overstating it slightly. Number ten would say there has been, right? There's a so what quality to them. But I had lunch uh, with a member of the twenty nine intake, yes, twenty nineteen intake, yesterday, and one thing they said was, what might tip it over the edge today is that people of my generation look to people like DD, people like Andrew Mitchell, even if you don't have a personal relationship with them, right? They're the people who come and sit next to you in the tea room and tell you how stuff works. And they, you know, for instance, one was talking about how Bill Cash has been telling, uh, you know, the veteran Eurosceptic has been telling backbenchers in the tea room that Brexit is at risk of you, oust Boris Johnson, right? They, they listen to these people, even if they're not chummy with them. So, you know, number 10 will say, well, Andrew Mitchell is, you know, a total has-been and discredited or whatever, but it's the sort of thing... Younger MPs listen to certainly, and can look to and think. Well, they've had a you know a long career in politics of one sort or another. They know that party leaders come and go. David Davis has been in and out of favour with all of them. And exactly what made it more powerful, Andrew Mitchell opened that question, and he recounts this in his quite amusing memoir. I'm quite surprised he didn't plug it in the Commons. Is that he was the person who got uh, Boris Johnson on the Tory candidates list and got a phone call from John Major saying, "What the hell are you doing putting that idiot from the Daily Telegraph on the?" Candidates list. And it was all the more part, you know, battling for the leadership. He wasn't, a, as with DD 10 days ago, right? It, well, it, not a usual suspect. Yeah. And actually, it, it was interesting at the time because he said that 10 days ago he told Boris Johnson he had his support, mm. which whether that was around the time of DD, and now he's saying that he hasn't. Uh, Bernard Jenkins, I actually was trying to be helpful, but ended up uh, talking about how the Tory party have a habit of getting rid of party leaders, and, and someone shouted out, well, get on with it then. And then Steve Baker. Steve Baker's an interesting. Uh, character in all of this, you know the what the the unofficial whip of uh, conservative uh, Eurosceptics who basically forced David Cameron to concede in the referendum was an absolute nightmare for Theresa May, who refused a job from Boris Johnson. If he starts mobilising. Um, he always reminds me. I once wrote a column of him um, saying that he was the Jim Henson of politics because he was the he was the brains behind all the all of the Muppets. <laughs> but if he starts, which I bet he didn't, he didn't push back hard against that. No, he's, he's sure. enjoyed that a lot. Um, but if he starts mobilising in the way that he has done before against Boris Johnson, that's really bad for him, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, when I saw, you know, when people first started bobbing to catch the speaker's eye yesterday, the three people I spotted were Theresa May, Andrew Mitchell and Steve Baker. And if I were Boris Johnson, Steve Baker was, is the one who would worry me most. You know, he has no great loyalty to the Conservative Party. That's the key difference with him and the other three. Yeah. They are steeped in the tradition of the Conservative Party. They are Tories. Steve Baker is not a Tory. He's a member of the Conservative Party. He's not a Tory. He doesn't have any great reverence for the institutions of the British state or the traditions. For him, the Conservative Party is a means to an end for his um, libertarian free market politics. And he's seen Boris Johnson deviate from that on COVID, on net zero, and uh, and also on, on Brexit and other things. So that's why his interventions are so dangerous, because when he's got the bit between his teeth, he knows how to bring down a prime minister. Absolutely right. Alistair's been in touch. What happened to the mantra of politics without the boring bits? Tuesday morning is most certainly boring. Move on. Alistair... I'm just going to respectfully disagree. I think whether or not the Prime Minister has broken his own laws, uh, could be fined by the police and potentially removed from office, I think is quite interesting. If Alistair wants, I can spice it up with an impression in a bit. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Uh, you mentioned the 2019 intake. Uh, let's listen to a couple of them because I thought some of their interventions were, were particularly interesting. Let's take a listen. The one I recall attending was my grandmother's funeral. She was a wonderful woman, as well as a love for her family. She served her community as a councillor and she served Dartford Conservative Association loyally for many years. I drove for three hours from Staffordshire to Kent. Only ten people at the funeral, many people who loved her had to watch online. I didn't hug my siblings, I didn't hug my parents. I gave a eulogy, and then afterwards I didn't even go to her house for a cup of tea. I drove back three hours from Kent to Staffordshire. Does the Prime Minister think I'm a fool? Uh, 
I'm very, very sorry for misjudgments that may be made in, uh, by me or anybody else in number 10. We followed the rules. So many of my constituents have been incensed. The damage that this is doing to the government is enormous. It is about integrity and trust. I mean, pretty strong stuff there. That's Aaron Bell and Duncan Baker. What, what, you, well, you said you had lunch with one yesterday, but you meet lots of them. What is the mood amongst the 2019-18? There are two camps. There are the camp who believe Boris Johnson is, in the words of one of them, electoral magic. You've, they've either reacted to this scandal in one of two ways. One, they think Boris Johnson is the only way they can keep their seats. He's the only reason they won their seats. He's the only reason they're in conservative politics. And the second is he has to go. If he stays, they will lose their seats. It's not solely down to self-interest. Deeper questions of integrity and morality do feature. But I'd say that's the basic divide. And the fact that the the second faction, the faction who've concluded that, you know, the Prime Minister can't fix this, that if this carries on, it won't just be a Boris Johnson problem, it will be a Conservative Party problem. By the next election, it will be an, an Aaron Bell or a Duncan Baker problem. It'll be a problem about their personal brands, not just the brand of the party, the Prime Minister. That they feel empowered to say so after weeks of intensive whipping, both from the official whips operation and Boris Johnson's Praetorian Guard, is a sign, if we're talking about how screwed or not is Boris Johnson, is a sign that he's pretty screwed if MPs with every incentive to shut up, keep their heads down and play well, the game. Well, that's the interesting thing. Is that uh, getting up on their hind legs and saying, no, no more. If all was well with Boris Johnson and that this report meant nothing and he's now in the clear, you don't have a former Prime Minister, a former Chief Whip, uh, one of the ringleaders of Tory troublemakers and uh, new intake MPs who apparently owe everything to Boris Johnson standing up and publicly humiliating him, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and, In public. Yes. And there were loads of others who were doing it quietly. And these people, you know, Theresa May is an exception. She is never going to hold high office again. Um, but these people aren't without ambition. Even your David yeah. Davises and your Andrew Mitchells aren't without ambition. And yeah. it's particularly more acute for your 2019ers. Yeah. They take a job if they're offered one, but they, they've clearly concluded that either they don't want one or they wouldn't serve under this government. One thing that we saw a lot of yesterday, we saw, I think it was the likes of Mark Harper, Julian Lewis, Andrew Jones, Mark Harper, another former chief whip, um, standing up and demanding that Boris Johnson publishes the full Sue Gray report in full. And Boris Johnson refused to commit to that. And Mark Harper was shouting quite theatrically, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. After, after this whole thing broke up, Number 10 then said, at the end of the police process, the Prime Minister will ask Sue Gray to update her work in light of what is found. He will publish that update. And everyone said, oh, it's a U-turn, it's a U-turn. Two questions, really. One is, it's much easier to go back on something an anonymous Number 10 spokesman said rather than what the Prime Minister has said at the dispatch box. And the other is, that doesn't actually commit to publishing it in full. No, it, it no, commits it to it, another update. Exactly. Um... And obviously it suits number 10 to to spin that uh, as, oh, you know, today was an update, she will update further um, when uh, when the police have concluded their investigation. But it's a, you know, it's a reminder of, one, the power of the backbench is right. They wouldn't have, had there been no questions from known backbench troublemakers, they wouldn't have softened that position. But two, it's also a sign that they know that in all likelihood, the detail of the police report yesterday was bad enough. 300 photos, um, you know, if Sue Gray releases all her evidence, that will probably be lethal for the Prime Minister. So they're trying to square the circle clearly between the backbench move for transparency, which in some cases, for instance, Mark Harper and others, will be a pretext for having concrete evidence to 
say, yeah. well, the Prime Minister That's must resign. That's they want to. You know, exactly. So they, they don't want to look like people who are saying this because they want to get rid of the Prime Minister anyway, which some of them do. They want to be doing it on the basis of sound evidence. And number 10, though, actually, if they do release that report, they will probably have all they need to call for his resignation. OK, let's look at some of the, the um, substance of all of this. Boris Johnson, in his opening statement yesterday, said, I, of course, accept Sue, Gradings, Sue Gray's general findings in full... And above all, her recommendation that we must learn from these events and act now. But he then refused to concede any of the details of the events that she'd uh, actually laid out. And I think the, one of the interesting things is you've had, uh, there was the party, the, the cheese and wine in the garden. There was the party in the garden. There was the uh, night with the suitcase. I think for lots of voters, the party in his flat is a new front, mm. if you like. And uh, he faced loads of questions, very straightforward, factual questions, were you at the party celebrating the departure of Dominic Cummings in your own flat in November 2020? Can I just simply ask the Prime Minister, was the Prime Minister present at the event in his flat on the 13th of November? I assume he doesn't need other people to tell him whether he was there or not. On the 8th of December last year, he came to that dispatch box and flatly denied the very idea that any such party had taken place. He's shaking his head in answer to my honourable friend, the member for Hornsey and Wood Green, he said it had not happened. Now, he's inadvertently, Mr Speaker, misled the House. But I would like to know whether the Prime Minister was present in his flat at the event on the 13th of November 2020. Did he inadvertently mislead this House, put us all out of our agony and stop dragging democracy through the mud. Yeah. I mean, for the avoidance of that, he didn't answer that question at all, just kept saying wait for it. That was, Jess, that was the Labour MPs, Jess Phillips, Carl Turner, Diana Johnson and Catherine West, all asking if he was there. How bad do you think it is if it turns out Boris Johnson did have a party, although several people have pointed out Sue Gray doesn't use the word party. Gathering. A gathering of some description, a, a rule-breaking gathering in his own flat. I mean, he's, implicit, he's implicitly acknowledged that it would be terrible in that he's refusing to answer a question that, as the tone of all of those contributions makes clear, is totally, like, totally absurd to not be able to say, I knew what happened on my flat, flat or not on that Friday night. It's, you know, he's the Prime Minister. It's not like he was like down the pub and got in at... 3am and was like oh the wife said some mates around or whatever you know what I mean yeah. like and the product <laughs> and, and can we have you been having another Anne Summers Tupperware party <laughs> anyway um <laughs> I've now forgotten the question <laughs> the mental image for everyone um uh but that's the key point that's the key point he knows whether or not he was in the flat and he was just trying to get through it and so that's a uh Tim's just texting saying I think the phrase is present but not involved there you go. Um, but he won't, even, he won't even acknowledge that. On the question of misleading the House, um, loads of people came out. Obviously, um, Ian Blackford got into a spot of bother and it was actually thrown out. But Boris Johnson said in the House of Commons on December the 8th, I repeat that I've, I repeat that I've been repeatedly assured that since these allegations emerged that there was no party and no COVID rules were broken. That can't hold as a line, can it? There was no party. Fine. You know, we're now into semantic debate, dancing on the head of a pin about what a party is. So it might have been a gathering. It might have been a gathering. You know, for a minute, when I read the report yesterday, I thought number 10's defence would be, when is a party, not a party? You know, there's a difference with a gathering. But no COVID rules were broken. 
well, that's fine. You know, that was always, you know, there was a threadbare case, but it, there was nonetheless a case that, as some Tory MPs were still saying yesterday, that Number 10 is a unique mixture of office and residence and, you know, the Prime Minister is always at home but always at work. That is not true if friends of the Prime Minister's wife are in the private living quarters of Number 10, which are always separate from the rest of the building. And as we read in the Sunday Times at the weekend, Tim Shipman reporting that they also scattered around the flat, mainly highly confidential uh, documents, uh, which should have been in his red box. But apparently he's going to sort it all out, uh, Boris Johnson said, by um, overhauling uh, the number 10 operation. It is time to sort out what Sue Gray rightly calls the fragmented and complicated leadership structures of Downing Street which she says have not evolved sufficiently to meet the demands of the expansion of Number 10. And we will do that by creating an office of the Prime Minister with a permanent secretary to lead Number 10. He went on to say that he would review the civil service and its special advisor codes of conduct and strengthen cabinet government, because it's all the officials in the cabinet's fault. But what does all of this actually mean? Caroline Notes. Please can you let this House know what specific structures are going to be put in place so that this House can hold it accountable. Even if many people outside uh, don't, the number 10 actually uh, hosts about more than 400 officials uh, on a a busy day. Uh, They have a huge amount uh, to do and and we need to make sure, we need to make sure, no, Mr Speaker, they're working very hard. That's what they're doing. Becky Doyle Price. Can I ask my right honourable friend that as he institutes this review, call me old-fashioned, but ministers are accountable for decisions and that they're take, take, taken in their name, not flunkies in number 10, and will he ensure that reforms properly restore ministerial accountability? What do we think is actually going to happen in number... Because the only concrete thing we've got so far from number 10 about the changes he's going to make are that Linton Crosby is going to be popping in more, the famous... <laughs> Australian, the Wizard of Oz, Wizard yeah. of Oz Australian uh, election strategist. Yeah, Linton's going to be coming around for tea. We've had nothing on... Those are quite technical questions, and they're not questions that got Pulse's rating in the press gallery yesterday, admittedly, but they're really important questions, because if Boris Johnson's promise is to the Tory party, and he said this in the chamber as well, I'm going to restore cabinet government and, you know, a, you know, turn number 10 into a properly well-oiled government department, quite technical points about the plumbing of government, then he needs to do more than make a few changes to his court. And the problem with what we're talking about at the minute, if we're talking about Linton Crosby coming in and, you know, locking Boris in his cage and, until he learns his lines, or, you know, Dan Rosenfield going here, or Martin Reynolds going there, or whoever moving upstairs... That, that that's not they're not changes to the machinery of government they're changes of personnel that you know that it's the age old Boris Johnson thing of oh if only he has a you know a, a better gamekeeper to keep him in check um he'll be much better you know that there, there, there have been no concrete proposals about what this new number 10 department will look like and it was interesting that when uh, so i think um it was Jackie Dole Price at the end there was talking about uh, people in Number Ten briefing against ministers. There's quite a lot of nodding going on on the government front. Well, exactly, bench, because if you are, because they know that yeah. you know, if you're the Home Secretary or the Foreign Secretary or the Defence Secretary, and the Sunday papers in particular are filled with Downing Street sources saying you're rubbish, um, you think, well, I'm I'm the elected exactly, you know, member of the cabinet. If you're, and you know, it's more pronounced if you're a junior minister in an unfashionable department, right? You are the elected. Um, you're the elected politician to whom officials are accountable and you find that you have less access to information, less power, less influence. Yeah. And this is true. This is something cabinet ministers complain about, you know, that 
papers are put in front of them as a fair complete sort of, you know, criticism Dominic Cummings makes, not flavour of the month among Tory MPs, but on this, I think their views align. Well, not everyone was critical, we should point out. Uh, and so what we thought we'd do is round off uh, this uh, session with some of the slightly less um, credible contributions from Tory MPs. Basically, uh, lots of Tory MPs, they were clearly reading them as well, which suggests they might have literally been written by the whips. But this is what some Tory MPs tried to do when they tried to rescue uh, the uh, ride to the Prime Minister's rescue. Let's take a listen. Shall this Would my right honourable friend give me an assurance that notwithstanding the importance of the issue that we are discussing at present, his government will start addressing other important matters that concern my constituents. Susan Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does my right honourable agree with me that those opposite have used up far too much time, far too much parliamentary time, debating this? And I can assure my right honourable friends that the residents of Stourbridge, the residents of Stourbridge, they want the Prime Minister to focus on the matters that really they care about. Will the Prime Minister reassure me that he will not be distracted by any of this and that he will get on with the job and come forward with a solution to that issue? Speaker, I um, I welcome my right honourable friend's apology. He's taken responsibility, he's apologised, and it's right that he should do so. Stop, Benton. This Prime Minister has had the most difficult job in living history. He's been dealing with a pandemic in which he nearly died. He's been dealing with the media who haven't forgiven him for delivering Brexit. Catherine Fletcher. Mr Speaker, on Saturday I was out about enjoying ice cream in Lancashire, which I know you and your family do in some of the finest ice cream parlours in the north of England, and they said to me, he's a Wally, but 100,000 Russians have just turned up, what what the bloody hell are we doing talking about cake? Does the Prime Minister agree with that statement? (laughs) One of the great contributions to the House of Commons ever, that. The, the, what's supposed to be a helpful contribution to short the Prime Minister says um, that her constituents are saying he's a Wally, but 100,000 rushes have turned up. What the bloody hell are we doing talking about You can cake? just imagine in the ice cream parlour just saying, sorry, can you say that again? I'm going to write this down. <laughs> How are we spelling Wally? Is that with a Y or an IE? <laughs> the, in- the interesting thing, you know, you should have played Dignity by Deacon Blue over, over those because that's very much the word that came to mind listening to them. Interesting thing, sort of semi-serious point. Last night we had a tweet from Gary Sandbrook, uh, who was the ringleader of the so-called pork pie plot, in which he said, um, you know, as if he was being kept hostage. It was his Winston Smith moment. He said, um, that was the Boris Johnson we love, um, and, you know, disavowed his previous, you know, plotting against him. Holly Mumby Croft, that MP for Scunthorpe, who said, please don't get distracted from all your brilliant work, Prime Minister, actually rebelled on the Owen Patterson motion. She was one of, a, you know, only, I think, three 2019 intake MPs. So that just shows how some of them, you know, you have your Aaron Bells and Duncan Bakers who have been getting up in the chamber saying enough is enough, but the whips have been turning the screws on some of the other ones. Number 10 still retains that crucial power of patronage even over the, the wobblers. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 